the world mourned after the terrorist attacks in Paris. It is an act of war, said France's president today, after a night of horror. Istanbul. Another day, another terrorist bombing. Uh, this one is in Turkey. And San Bernardino. Gunmen storm a social services center. 14 people are dead. More than a dozen others injured. Millions are fleeing the violence in the Middle East as ISIS imposes strict Sharia law on its captured territories. Syrian journalist Mazar Matar is from Raqqa and knows what it's like to live under ISIS rule. After ISIS took control of the city, they spent the initial phase enforcing their new laws. They started arresting and beating large numbers of people. Many were flogged in the public squares. They also formed an all-female brigade called Khansa Brigade. It became the brigade that would inspect women and tell them with vehicles to enforce the new dress code. Many people were flogged and many were also killed for insulting religion. God and the Prophet. They were killed in the squares in front of everyone. They began to scare people with strict and severe punishments for those who violated these laws. No one could get away from punishment. They even organized screenings on the street where they would play videos of the executions and killings. This was the way they were able to terrorize everyone in the city in a massive way. After hearing Matar's story, it's hard to understand why anyone would support this terrorist organization. We pose that question to Hassan Hassan, resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. He says ISIS has successfully conflated anger toward the West with a utopian desire for a caliphate. The caliphate is an idea that inspires many Muslims. The idea of Muslims being part of one empire or part of one state that they complement each other and they complete uh, each other in terms of resources, in terms of unity against their enemies and so on. And they think that the problems of the Muslim world emanate from the collapse of the caliphate. And the West's ability to control the Muslim world is because Muslims uh, are not united and not part of one state that brings back the glory of Islam in the, in the Middle Ages. That inspires some people to uh, be part of this organization that claims to be the organization that heralds the return of the caliphate. In a 2014 recruitment video, an ISIS fighter in Syria talks about Muslims from across the globe coalescing around this vision. We have brothers from Bangladesh, from Iraq, from Cambodia, Australia, UK. We, nothing has gathered us except to make Allah's word the highest. That's all we've came for. But while glorified rhetoric may explain the broad appeal of ISIS, or ISIL as it's sometimes called, it's been successful on the ground for another reason. Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution says that after the U.S. troop withdrawal from Iraq in 2011, then-Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki asserted Shia dominance and oppressed the Sunnis some of whom became extremists. Politics really are what reignited the dying embers of al-Qaeda and allowed for its return and then the development of ISIL. It was the misrule by Maliki and the sectarianism and the nepotism, which then made many Sunnis, including a lot of Sunni moderates, tolerant of this kind of extremism again. 
even though you know they had been active opponents of it during the surge and the period after the surge. Again, Hassan Hassan from the Tahrir Institute. We have to remember that ISIS provides security to some communities. They don't like ISIS. They cannot wait for the day when they get rid of ISIS. But at the same time, they look around and the alternative is Bashar Assad or the Iraqi government. And they don't want to live under these uh, regimes because in Syria, for example, even if you support Bashar Assad, or the regime in Damascus, you can still be bombed randomly in your area and you'll be killed with your family and so on. So whereas ISIS targets its enemies and goes after them, it doesn't bomb areas indiscriminately as the regime does. It goes after uh, what it claims to be their enemies. So for some people, there is a psychological certainty for living under ISIS as opposed to living under the Assad regime. So the way to defeat ISIS properly, not just tactically and then ISIS will come back later, is to provide an alternative, a viable alternative, an credible inter- alternative to its rule, uh, an organization or a government that is capable of allowing people to live in dignity and uh, in security at the same time. But before a long-term political solution can be found, coalition forces are working on the primary task of winning back ISIS-held land. This is particularly difficult given the nature of ISIS's structure, says Syrian journalist Mazar Matar. Disabling ISIS with airstrikes alone is impossible even if you do it for 100 years. ISIS people live amongst the civilians and not in a desert by themselves. You can attack them even as an organized army. But they are everywhere living amongst civilians. So it is impossible to do this with airstrikes alone, unless the plan is to kill all people who live there, whether they are fighters or civilians. Of course, these conversations are very difficult. That skepticism is shared by some American security experts, too. There is no victory through air power solution to ISIS. It has to be defeated by ground troops going in and digging them out. James Jeffrey worked for 35 years as an American diplomat, including serving as ambassador to Turkey and Iraq under President Obama. He was also deputy national security advisor to President George W. Bush. He says the recent victory against ISIS in Ramadi should be replicated elsewhere. In Ramadi, the real fighting was done by a small group of Iraqi counterterrorism troops who've been trained for decades by us. I've witnessed their training. I've been out with them. They are very good, but they're few in number. American troops are at that level in even higher degree of competence. Nobody else in the entire region is. Thus, by ruling out American troops, uh, you have a situation where you have almost no one who is competent to go in and dig these people out. That's much more difficult than holding terrain against ISIS. People from all over the Middle East are holding terrain against ISIS right now. Going in and digging them out is a job for first-class professionals. Without such forces, going in and mixing it up with these guys, they're going to stay, and in staying, they're going to help destabilize the Middle East even more. Most Americans agree with Jeffrey. According to an ABC Washington Post poll, 73 percent of Americans support increased U.S. airstrikes against ISIS and 60 percent back more ground forces. But how many ground troops and in what capacity? It's an escalation in the war on ISIS. The White House announced roughly 50 special operations forces will be deployed to northern Syria as part of what's being described as an intensifying strategy 
including targeted raids against ISIS positions in Iraq and Syria. While Americans favor more significant use of ground troops, President Obama disagrees. As the president detailed in this year's State of the Union address, he thinks American ground troops should be few in number and limited to support roles. For more than a year, America has led a coalition of more than 60 countries to cut off ISIL's financing, disrupt their plots, stop the flow of terrorist fighters, and stamp out their vicious ideology. With nearly 10,000 airstrikes, we're taking out their leadership, their oil, their training camps, their weapons. We're training, arming, and supporting forces who are steadily reclaiming territory in Iraq and Syria. In terms of uh, stamping out the the worst of ISIL as a terrorist network holding uh, territory in the Middle East, I think we are on the right track. Anne-Marie Slaughter is the president and CEO of the nonpartisan think tank New America and was a top aide to former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Building a coalition of countries, particularly local countries, training uh, Iraqis and Syrians and others uh, to actually do battle with ISIS on the ground, supported by air power, I think that is the right strategy. It's a strategy President Obama says will prevent the United States from becoming entrenched in a prolonged conflict. We also can't try to take over and rebuild every country that falls into crisis, even if it's done with the best of intentions. That's not leadership. That's a recipe for quagmire, spilling American blood and treasure that ultimately will weaken us. Force has a really important role in foreign policy. James Jeffrey agrees we should not engage in nation building, but he argues for a surge in forces to break through the gridlock. We had an exit strategy in 1991 in the first Gulf War. We used military forces effectively to defeat a military force. We then turned to the region to international organizations, and to local forces to secure and to build on what we had done. That's what we have to do. Anne-Marie Slaughter agrees with Jeffrey that the U.S. military should expand its mission, especially in Syria. If you're willing to fight Assad to get a political settlement, then you can actually put together coalitions of forces who will fight ISIS. What the president's not been willing to do is something like creating safe zones and patrolling those from the air or bombing uh, President Assad's air force on the ground or simply bombing his runways so that he cannot uh, take planes and drop barrel bombs on his citizens. While both Jeffrey and Slaughter see the military as essential for turning the tide against ISIS, both recognize the battle to win back mines will take much longer to achieve. In the case of ISIS, even more than al-Qaeda, its ideology is reinforced and supported by its ability to stand up as a state, as a caliphate, to assert that it is holding off the entire world. This creates tremendous sympathy for it. You take down its status as a state, that sympathy will dissipate. We fought an ideology for 50 years during the Cold War, so we we know how to do that. And part of that, though, really means looking carefully at who are the people who are most likely to be radicalized, collecting intelligence, as we already do, but also understanding many of the kids who have wanted to go and 
join ISIS, and New America maintains a database on these kids, are people who feel isolated, who feel alienated from mainstream American culture. Ironically, the things that we do to fight ISIS means we often essentially race profile Muslims, and they get treated differently, and that contributes to the very alienation we need to tackle. We'll look into that broader question of the worldwide effort to stop extremism after the break. You're listening to Fighting ISIS at Home and Abroad. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. You're listening to Fighting ISIS at Home and Abroad on America Abroad. East Avenue, multiple shots fired. Eastbound San Bernardino, multiple shots fired. We need a Bearcat. 14 dead, 22 injured. That was the tally from the San Bernardino attack this past December, committed by Tashfin Malik and her husband, Syed Farouk. We need medical aid. Copy. We're getting them started. Malik had publicly pledged her loyalty to ISIS on Facebook. Until the attack, the couple was completely off anyone's radar. Farouk was described as quiet, polite, and he got along well with his co-workers. He certainly seemed mild-mannered on his dating profile on ArabLounge.com, describing himself as Allah-fearing, calm, thoughtful, a simple man. Politicians and law enforcement have struggled to figure out what can be done to prevent attacks like this. President Obama renewed his call for stricter control on gun sales, while Republicans in Congress led a bipartisan effort to tighten the visa waiver program that allowed Malik to enter the country. The nays, 19. Two-thirds being in the affirmative, the rules are suspended. The bill is passed, and without objection... Recently, America Abroad brought together panelists in Berlin and Philadelphia for an international town hall on how to stop the spread of extremism. Jackie Leiden moderated from Philadelphia. I think it's time to meet our panelists. We're really fortunate today. Here in Philadelphia, we have Maureen Farouk with the World Organization for Resource Development and Education and Zainab Al-Sawaj with the American Islamic Congress. Maureen, um, how... At risk, would you say that uh, American Muslims are to the threat of radicalization? If you consider the the magnitude of how much uh, extremist content is out there in in the Twitterverse and social media, it's astounding. And it can be really discouraging as a community organizer. Uh, Take the example of one day uh, ISIS um, supporters had 40,000 tweets one day. So, you know, even just posting one video, one meme out there that counters their extremist message is literally a drop in the bucket. Um, So I actually think that working with communities and building that community awareness can be more powerful. So educating parents, educating teachers, law enforcement, um, school counselors, school resource officers, everybody who has any potential uh, linkage to somebody who could be vulnerable to radicalization and educating them about what the various risk factors are, mobilizing those community actors Uh, towards developing solutions. And then the final component is conducting an intervention where it's appropriate, where there is that space within the community to work and help prevent somebody from becoming a violent extremist. Okay, I think we're going to come back now to a couple of more questions here. Uh, Hey, I am Youssef, and I am from Syria. 
So I come here in you, I have accent anyway. So uh, what should me and Zainab and other uh, liberal Muslims do to improve Islam image? Um, as a Muslim, uh, practicing Muslim myself and ahead of an, a Muslim organization, our organization, the American Islamic Congress, we ha- have led a lot of campaigns to encourage young people, so whether they are journalists, bloggers, activists in the community, to be the voice for the voiceless or for the majority silenced people. Many people understand that radical Islamists are the one of the problem, but they are a small minority in the Muslim community. But Muslim, American Muslim, for example, European Muslims or Muslim throughout the, the, the Muslim world who are practicing their normal life every day and going to work, coming back home, and they do not make uh, the news. Let, let's get to uh, some questions here. Hello. My name is Alexandra Donos, and uh, I'm a 12-year student of Central High School, Philadelphia. Considering that we're mainly um, looking for eliminating an idea, we're not looking for eliminating groups because that would be kind of useless while the idea is there. Um, How does one eliminate an idea? It is such a um, thing that it's not a thing. Maureen, how do you counter an idea, Mm. uh, a cause, you know, a a wish fulfillment? Mm. So what's interesting is a lot of these violent extremist organizations like ISIS, like Shabaab, like the Taliban, they're picking up on grievances. They're picking on those five risk factors that we discussed earlier. So when it comes to trying to prevent that or to even de-radicalize somebody from those ideas, you have to get to the core of the issue. So we organize a number of workshops. We do um, uh, sort of like spoken word initiatives. We do podcasts. So students can actually express some of those issues that are troubling them. You know, they create poetry and skits that address um, hate speech, cyberbullying. Recently, for example, we did a workshop um, to develop a podcast on online predators. Another uh, example of how we can do that is countering the extremist ideologies from within the same framework that the extremists are using. So when it comes to groups like ISIS, we're bringing together traditional mainstream religious scholars who can go back to the source, they go back to the Quran, they go back to examples of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and they try and they, they address point by point all the, the tenets that groups like ISIS are trying to propagate, and they refute them. Those are voices from an America Abroad town hall on ending radicalization. As we've heard, there is a wide variety of people working to prevent radicalization, and in some cases, it's being done by former extremists themselves, like Hanif Qadir. Back in 2003, he left his home in London to join al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. But shortly after he arrived, he became disillusioned. What I saw, what I was exposed to, was was contrary to what I was what I was led to believe, and um, it was almost hypocrisy that was at play here. So the very reason why I got involved was to prevent you know innocent people being harmed or being victimized or being you know being killed. And what I was exposed to was the very same things that uh, that I stood against, which was you know using and harming innocent uh, children. So. I saw Al-Qaeda and the people that I went with um, doing exactly what they were saying the Americans were doing, which is what was disgusting. So I, I stood against that. Was there one thing that you saw in particular? A, a young man, a young kid who was, who was uh, being brought back from the battlefield. I think he'd, he'd been hurt. And um, he was telling me that you know, he came to help his, his Muslim brothers and sisters and he wanted to help the victims. And uh, these guys that uh, he, he went with were using him basically as, as cannon fodder. Basically, he was 
told to go in one direction where there was bullets and bombs were flying, and um, he saw most of the people that he went with were killed. So he was he was angry at that. He was calling them butchers. So you had joined Al Qaeda when? How old were you? Oh, I was in my uh, early thirties. Early thirties, so relatively late. Yeah, yeah. So why? What what prompted you to join Al Qaeda? What was it? It wasn't a known network at that point. It was just a group of people that were standing up for you know for the best interests of civilians. I felt I could help the victims, help the orphans, help the widows, and and you know the injured. So one thing led to another, and before I knew it, I was in Afghanistan, you know, wanting to go and do some good work. So when you got there, you realized that wasn't necessarily true, and then what happened? Well, when I started to question what I saw, I was met with hostility. I'm here to offer my services and, you know, potentially my life. I'm in a war zone here, and I want to do something good and sort of something meaningful, but I'm met with hostility here because I questioned something which I didn't agree with. So from that uh, point, it became a bit hostile in that they all had, uh, you know, AK-47s and, and they were very, very hostile. So I was, I was very lucky to be able to return back to, to Pakistan. How did you become involved in working with youth and, and young men in, in the UK, in London, to try to prevent them from doing the same thing you did? Well, when I came back, I was quite upset. I was quite confused as to what, what I'm going to do next. So I started to work with some young kids, and I realized that some of these guys have got the same kind of hostility, same kind of fire in them that I had. It reminded me of, you know, my own, my own sort of journey. So I, I, I started to talk to some of them, and I said, look, you know, you, you don't fully understand what's going on, and whatever's going on, everybody feels upset about the loss of innocent women and children and lives. But, you know, you've got to look at the other side of the coin as well. I mean, I've been there, and I've seen the same people, or the very people that you think are your Muslim brothers, who are also using innocent women and children for, you know, to become suicide bombers and to become cannon fodder. So you need to understand that everything's not plain black and white. So by talking to some of them, I realized that, you know, it, it changed the way they thought about things. So I decided to, to start up the organization to prevent prostitution, to prevent gang crime, but also to look at how we can prevent, you know, this kind of recruitment. It was 2003 by that time. And, you know, not many people understood in my local community what I was trying to do. I wasn't getting the, the kind of support or the understanding from the community as well as the local authorities until, I would say, the airline plot in 2006 when 14 guys were arrested from this area in Walthamstow for plotting to, to blow up airliners across the Atlantic. That's when I think the authorities and the local community realized that this thing is really happening. So we started to get some support. We started to get some you know, community uh, participation. It was about getting people to understand that this is happening in our local area. Individuals are operation in our local area, and they're grooming and recruiting our young men and women. So you work with a lot of young people now, and I'm just wondering, how do you know who is vulnerable to being recruited? Are there any signs? We get to identify a number of different issues, and lots of them are to deal with problems that they have at home. And then from there, we get to identify more about their own mental way of thinking, their own grievances that they hold. And there's always something underlying, there's always something that's a trigger point for them to sort of go into this way of thinking. So, yeah, through dialogue, through debate, through engagement, we get to understand where an individual is and how far he's, he's gone on the trajectory. What is that trigger point? It could be a number of things, uh, Madeline. It could be anything from just having an issue at home. We've got kids that have got domestic violence issues at home. And often we find that young people are also approached by you know, other, other individuals in, in, our, in our community. And that could be the trigger point where they've met somebody 
and or what language or what stories and symbols have been relayed to them. For, for instance, that when we start to talk about in the hearts of the green birds, this is where we're talking about martyrs, you know, that after death, those that are, you know, martyred on a, on a battlefield and in, in, the, in a jihad. What does that mean, at the heart of the green birds? These are the green birds that we're flying around in paradise. Mm-hmm. So when you're martyred, you know, you go straight to paradise and God places your soul in the hearts of the green birds. So, and you're questioned many times by God, like, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? And the, your, your response will be, oh, God, send me back down to earth so I can be martyred again for your cause. So when, when we find young men or young women relating to that story, we know that they're now beyond extremism. They're now convincing themselves of whether they're doing the right thing or not. So for you, that is a big warning sign. For us, it, it allows us to measure where the individual is at. You know, we can, we can counter that. Again, you know, we need to have counter stories and counter arguments, but at least it allows us to know that now we've got a problem on our hands and we really need to be, you know, working intensely with this individual. So identifying what the problems were and then going back and removing them bit by bit is what's key to, to, to changing a mind of an individual. Is there so, a profile? Is there any, anything at all that you can say, okay, well, this person I need to spend more time with and attention to because he or she fits some kind of a profile? There's not one particular profile that we can set, really. When we found some people watching, you know, Internet and YouTube videos about the arrivals or the Illuminati, when they start to believe that there's this grand design by another organization to undermine Islam and Muslims... That, for us, is a concerning point because it puts them into a situation where they've started to believe that, you know, there is a war on Islam. I think we have in our imagination a profile of a young, disillusioned man from a broken home who's looking for belonging somewhere. But when you look at who carried out, let's say, the 9-11 attacks or some other attacks, many of them were professional men who were older, who had families, who seemed to be fitting in perfectly well with Absolutely. mainstream society. Absolutely. So is, is that something that you encounter when you're trying to prevent people from joining these groups? That yes, really yes. the kind of person who might be susceptible is not the kind of person we think at all. Absolutely. It's, it's not unusual with the number of people that we work with. I could cite you know, almost 60% of the cases that we work with are not from broken families or from broken homes. They're from, from well-to-do families. It's, it's what they start to believe or what, what's, you know, who they've been exposed to, what really matters. Who or what are the primary motivators? Is it the media? Is it their peer group, local imams? I think it's a number of different things. In the past, we've had a lot of street preachers. We've had a lot of information being put out into the public domain. But what we found in our community is when we talk about terrorism within the Muslim community, a lot of Muslims find that very upsetting because they don't believe that Muslims would do that. And when another story comes in or a theory comes in that actually it was a CIA plot, they would rather believe that. So when information is put into the community, the community will gravitate towards that information that they will accept or that they would like to accept. Right. So how do you combat that? Right. It's about questioning where the information comes from. It's about looking at things rationally, not having an irrational belief, not defaulting to this, you know, Muslims wouldn't do this. Can you point to any success stories that you've had of your outreach efforts actually Absolutely. working? Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm proud to say that every case that we've worked with, we have not failed on any of them. All of them have been successful. You work with the British government. You work with the army, with the police, the local police. How are you not viewed by 
some Muslims in in your area with suspicion that you might just be a tool of the government uh, intent on spying on Muslims oh. and and to act as some kind of um, you know big brother. Oh, I mean, I'm suspected all the time. Many people have said that I work for the CIA, I work for MI5, I work for all the security services. And I laugh at that, and I say, well, that curiosity helps me. I could do without it, to be honest with you, because it does hamper us, you know. But at some point, for the more radical mind, because of their curiosity about me and their belief that I'm a mouthpiece or a tool for the government, we'll come and sit down and have a discussion about that, and, and I'll introduce certain individuals that I've worked with. And I'll say, well, you know, don't take my word for it and speak to these young men, you know, and I'll walk away. You've been doing this for 10 years. I'm wondering what your sense is in terms of whether it's gotten better or worse. It's become challenging, I would say, Madeline. Currently, Syria is much more of a concern than any, any of the other ones, Afghanistan or Iraq, put together. Syria has been mentioned many times in the Quran and the Hadith that there will be wars in Syria. It will be the launch pad for the greatest war of all times. So this is why we're having young men and women flocking to Syria. Um, One, for a humanitarian cause, to help out people who are suffering. And number two, we cannot discount the ones that want to go there for a fight. So it is on a different scale altogether. So this is proving very challenging for us. So how do you combat that or try to combat it? What do you say? The argument that we have is that if you want to go to help you know, for humanitarian purposes, you don't need to go there, you can do it from here. But if you're going to go there for jihad, then you've got parents over here that need you and are pleading with you not to go. So you have no authority, you've got no reason, and it's actually not a jihad if you're going to persist and go. Well, recently, um, we've had a young man who's gone to Syria and and has died there, and his mother was pleading with him not to go. So we were asking her to come in to talk to some of our young men and women about, you know, how she's lost her son, how she's pleading with him. Hopefully that might make a bit more of an impact and a difference to other young men and women. Well, I want to thank you very much for sharing your story with with me. It's a pleasure. It was really interesting. Hanif Kadir, once an Islamic extremist, is back in London and now runs the Active Change Foundation. Our conversation was recorded back in 2013. You're listening to Fighting ISIS at Home and Abroad on America Abroad. Coming up, we look at what some Muslim Americans are doing to fight the problem of extremism here. Visit our website for images, special features, and more. We're at americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brandt, and you're listening to Fighting ISIS at Home and Abroad on America Abroad. As we've been hearing this hour, taking on ISIS isn't just about combating a military insurrection. It's also about countering an insidious ideology. Recruiters prey on vulnerable youth and others who feel marginalized, luring them with glorified promises of a utopian caliphate. In the U.S. and around the world, there has been much debate about whether Muslim communities have a greater responsibility to fight the ideology of Islamic extremism. I spoke with Kurum Dara, an attorney and author of the book Contracting Fear, Islamic Law in the Middle East and Middle America. His recent op-ed for The Wall Street Journal is called Our Duty as Muslim Americans. I asked him what compelled him to write that. The way I like to frame it is that I think most reasonable people understand that what's going on in the Middle East, 
when you talk about the growth of groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS uh, is the result of many factors. And the underlying ideology that has really seized and taken advantage of those circumstances is radical Islam. And what's so troubling is that, uh, you know, it espouses this notion that not only is it permitted to kill innocent people, it is in fact uh, even encouraged by the faith or commanded. And what we've seen of late uh, is a situation where there are people out there who may not even have direct contact with some of these groups, but who buy into some of this radical propaganda uh, and decide to commit horrific acts of violence. And when you look at you know that sort of change threat, I think it's really only other Muslims that are able to wage and lead the propaganda war against this type of radicalization that's going on. Because in so many ways, it's very much an assault uh, on us. I mean, these attacks are, are sort of a, a one-two punch. Because first, there's, of course, the, the horrific killing and violence that occurs. But there are also this, there's this, you know, collateral damage, these after effects, where the attacks are perpetrated in a way and in a, in a manner that is uh, done deliberately and intentionally to inflict you know, as much scrutiny and suspicion of other Muslims as possible to perhaps uh, maybe make those who are on the fringes uh, of our communities feel alienated and more sympathetic to their cause. And um, I think that's part of the reason why I think it's so important for us to be on the front lines of the propaganda war that's going on. I wonder if you could tease that out a bit, because what we have been hearing is that ISIS wants to wage a war against the West and engage Mm -hmm. in a battle of uh, ideologies. And you're saying that they also want to wage a war against Muslims who do not share their beliefs? Uh, Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. So how can Muslim Americans counter that? Well, I think first uh, it starts by acknowledging that there is a problem within Islam. It's not a problem with Islam or or with Muslims generally, uh, but there is a disease that is present within the faith, uh, this sort of radicalized, perverted view of the faith, and we have to be vigilant of that. Um, I think Muslims, particularly those of us who are from Western societies, have to take advantage of the opportunities we have. Um, You know, I live with the benefit and the protection of freedom of speech and freedom of association. I live in a country that has quality education, uh, technological affluence, free and uncensored Internet. I have the ability as an ordinary citizen, not as a a high-ranking government official, not as a religious leader, to make my voice heard in a way that uh, Muslims in other countries are not able to. I mean, you can't criticize your government in some countries. You can't criticize uh, certain ideologies in, in, in other countries because if you do, you're attacked, uh, you're, you're persecuted, you're, you're, you're imprisoned, you're, you're killed even. And I think we ought to spend as much time thinking about how we're going to combat radicalism uh, as we do talking about protecting our own civil liberties because both are very important. I think both are connected. Um, I also think we have to amplify some of the positive voices out there. There's a lot of good work being done in the world to counter extremism. Uh, There's good examples. I think Indonesia is an excellent example. Uh, Indonesia, despite having the world's largest Muslim population, has one of the lowest levels of recruitment uh, you know, among countries with significant Muslim populations to groups like ISIS. That runs you know, counter to a lot of popular narratives that people may have about Muslims and terrorism. Um, I also think that we have to teach this. I mean, the same, the same way that we teach different aspects and tenets of the religion, the same way that we teach about its history, uh, we have to teach you know, our younger people about the dangers of radicalism, uh, the danger it poses to the world, and the danger it poses to other Muslims and, and the faith generally. And you think that that has to fall on the shoulders of other Muslims? 
I'm not sure, you know, who it has to fall on the shoulders of. I just think that Muslims are perhaps best positioned to, to make a credible case against the radicalism. I mean, we, we've gotten very good at reacting to events, but I think we have to be, you know, more proactive. Um, and we have to stay engaged. Unfortunately, there's no global head or global authority for Muslims worldwide. There, there's not even really an authority in the United States for Muslims here. I mean, we have all kinds of organizations that exist, but I think Muslims in this country overwhelmingly feel uh, like none of these organizations really represent their interests. I mean, I, I think Gallup did a study uh, in 2011, maybe, um, and they asked the question to Muslims in this country, um, you, know, you know, who do you think best represents you? And I think of all the organizations, the, the Council on American Islamic Relations, which is, you know, an organization you see in the media all the time, you know, they got the, the most votes to that question, but they only got something like 11 or 12 percent, uh, meaning, you know, almost nine out of 10 Muslims don't feel that, you know, those organizations adequately represent their interests. And, and that actually makes perfect sense uh, when you think about who Muslims are. I mean, we are not a monolith. We are a very diverse group of people. It's a very large religion. There's a lot of nationalities, ethnic backgrounds, races of people who, who are Muslim. And I think that's why, you know, local congregations and local leadership have to take an active role because they can actually be more responsive to the needs of their members. Well, how big a threat do you think radical Islam is here in the United States? I don't think radical Islam is an existential threat to the United States as a whole. I don't think a group like ISIS will ever, of course, defeat the United States um, or will ever be a, a, a real threat uh, to our country. It, of course, can wreak terrible violence uh, against people, and it is a threat to people in our country. But I think it's an existential threat to the religion. Um, I think it's doing, and I hope it's not the case, but it's doing almost irreparable harm to the faith itself. So while there are certainly other issues that we face in this country, um, you know, from my perspective, as someone who, who's an American and also a Muslim, um, this is one that's very near and dear to my heart because I, to me, it's just so incredibly offensive and tragic. Whenever you see an attack committed anywhere, and especially here at home, and especially when the perpetrators of the attack claim to be doing so in the name of your belief system, because I don't want to have to, you know, have a conversation with my kids one day about this type of stuff. I don't want to have to tell them that they might have to be, you know, wary about, you know, overtly showing that they are Muslim. I don't want to have to fear that they may be treated differently. Um, and I don't want to have to fear that somebody from our community might be susceptible to recruitment or radicalization. So when you look at what happened in San Bernardino, do you mm -hmm. think that other Muslims could have done something to prevent it? You know, I, I certainly don't think that, that other Muslims are, are responsible for, you know, the actions of, of radical Muslims. I hope that moving forward, you, you know, we can develop the kinds of relationships with, you know, our local uh, civic and, and community leaders and also do what we can uh, in our own communities so that that type of radicalization doesn't occur. But here you have someone who operated pretty stealthily and was not on the radar of anyone, including law enforcement or other Muslim leaders in his area, mm -hmm. and yet he was able to pull off this attack. Is, is it just going to be that we won't be able to prevent all of these attacks? You know, I think there's always a chance that, that something happens. But, you know, just because you can't prevent, you know, every attack from happening, I'm not sure that that's a reason to not make an effort. Um, I'd like to think that defeating the ideology that underlies some of this is a start. Um, there are obviously a number of factors in the Middle East that have allowed this ideology to grow substantially in you know, political instability, uh, fundamentally deficient governing structures, repressive authoritarian regimes, local grievances. 
Um, you know, all of those things are, are part of, you know, what we consider to be a multifaceted problem. Um, and I think we need to take a multifaceted approach when we talk about solutions. Um, it's entirely possible that you, you just aren't able to prevent every single attack. But I, but I think that's, that's part of the reason why Muslims in the United States are uniquely positioned um, to, to actually make a difference in the propaganda war. I mean, I think it may be possible that, that with preventative measures taken by American Muslim communities to, to really do what they can to root out and ostracize this ideology, that people, before they are radicalized, um, understand the myth of it, that it isn't actually beneficial to anybody, that it doesn't get anyone anything, uh, and that ultimately it does more harm to Muslims uh, and the religion itself than anything. So what does that look like to you for other Muslims to try to offer a counter-narrative to people who might be susceptible to radical Islam? I think local leaders have to really step up. And I mean, if, if religious leaders, our religious leaders have been good at condemning radicalism, uh, but these people should be declared apostates. I mean, they, they are not doing God's work. They, they are in many ways doing the work of the devil, the opposite. So I think it's important that a strong counter-narrative is pushed, and, and it, it is being pushed. Uh, there are a lot of great Muslim leaders in the United States uh, that are pushing that narrative. Um, and I think you know other Muslims have to do what we can to amplify those voices. Kuram Dara is an attorney and author living in New York. One hotspot is Minneapolis, home to the country's largest Somali community. According to the U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security, between 2008 and 2013, about 40 young men, the vast majority Somali-American, left to join al-Shabaab, the radical Islamist group in Somalia. Last year, six Somali-American men from Minneapolis were arrested and charged with conspiring to provide material support to a designated terrorist organization. But Muslim groups based in Minneapolis have been working hard to offer a counter-narrative. Producer Samara Freemark sat down with two men on the front lines of this domestic fight against radicalization. I met up with Derwin Ellis and Abdi Malik Mohammed at a Starbucks in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood of Minneapolis. It's an area where a ton of Somalis have settled in recent years, and the coffee shop was full of Somali men, drinking coffee and chatting boisterously. Mohammed is the education director for Kajuk, a Somali-led arts nonprofit in Minneapolis that works with about 3,000 young people. Our goal is to make sure the youth stay out of trouble, not dropping out of school or joining gangs or becoming radicalized. Derwin Ellis is a community engagement officer for the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office. His job? Connect with and support the local Somali population and help these two very different communities understand each other a bit better. The culture of policing isn't the way it was in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. It's changing everyone. It's recognizing more that you can't arrest your way out of many different problems. So you have to try different tactics and different things, and you have to work with the community. Four times a year, the Sheriff's Department, along with representatives of the FBI, Homeland Security, and state police, come together with local Somali groups, including Kajuk to discuss problems in the community and what to do about them. If you really want to make a change, Big Brother's not going to solve this problem. You want information? Give the power back to the people. And the community will give you what you want in return. They know who's doing what. They can get it for you, but what is the price that they're going to do that for? You know, not just having cameras there and an informant there. It has to be a two-way. and It has to be a listening and hearing and, and communicating rather than coming down and hammering, big brother hammering down, here's what I need you to do. I would go to him and say, hey, what is it that you want 
a sheriff's deputy or any law enforcement to know about you. He knows that he can call us 24-7. And believe it or not, I know I can do the same thing with them, you know, and we recognize each other. We all have a common goal, and we know we're partners. I have to be friendly. I have to be accommodating. I have to learn some things about them before I go see them. Matter of fact, I'm learning Somali right now. I can say Galawanaksan and Iskarwaran, and someone tells me, say, I'll say Wanfianai. And how's his accent? Oh, it's very nice, very nice. I'm very impressed. In a year, he's going to be fluent. He's going gonna, gonna, gonna to probably translate for the next generation of Somalis, you know? So yeah, he's very impressive. He knows all the food. He can go to any restaurant and order Somali food, you know? So I tell everybody that's communication when you sit, when you eat. Well, you're communicating. This seems like a very different mentality on both of your parts than what we normally think of as counter-radicalization, you know, based on surveillance and much more punitive. It's like a very different mentality from, you know, France, where they they barred people from wearing headscarves in public. It's good to be in America. It's just beautiful. It's beautiful to be in America because when I see those kind of things, now you look at who wants to oppress who. You know, I, I think they're creating the oppression, they're creating the separation, they're creating the radicalization that happens because people will go to the extreme to protect their culture, their religion. In 2012, Kajug won a National FBI Community Leadership Award for the work they do to steer young people away from gangs, drugs, and religious extremism. But Abdi Malik Mohammed says there's a lot left to do. One day at a time, one day at a time. There's always going to be issues. Every day it has its own reward, its own failure. We have a long way to go, but hopefully with time it will, with time. Kajuk plans to expand to communities all across Minnesota. They're starting Minnesota's first Somali Girl Scout troop. And they're going international. Abdi Malik Mohammed says they're working to bring their youth arts programs back to Somalia. This is Samara Freemark for America Abroad. Since Samara filed this story a few years ago, Mohammed has become the chair of a Countering Violent Extremism Task Force. It was initiated by the chief federal prosecutor from Minnesota and tries to build resilience against terrorism by creating more career and educational opportunities for Somali Americans. All this concern over homegrown terrorists has put Muslim Americans on the defensive. In his presidential address nine days after the September 11th attacks, President George W. Bush made a concerted effort to make a clear distinction between Islam and extremism. The terrorists are traitors to their own faith, trying in effect to hijack Islam itself. The enemy of America is not our many Muslim friends. It is not our many Arab friends. Our enemy is a radical network of terrorists and every government that supports them. And when discussing ISIS, President Obama has also made it a point to take religion out of the equation. ISIL is not Islamic. No religion condones the killing of innocents. And the vast majority of ISIL's victims have been Muslim. Yet today, many Republicans, such as Texas Senator and presidential hopeful Ted Cruz, have blasted that. He told Fox News, the parsing of words shows weakness. We need a leader who's clear-eyed, who understands who the enemy is, who will call the enemy by its name, as Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton refused to do, and will do everything necessary to defeat radical Islamic terrorism and keep this nation safe. 
So what's the too. problem with radical Islam? Well, the problem is that that sounds like we are declaring war against a religion. Like Obama, Hillary Clinton, a Democratic presidential contender, argues certain terminology comes with unwanted repercussions. Here she is on ABC's This Week. It doesn't do justice to the vast numbers of Muslims in our own country and around the world who are peaceful uh, people. Number two, it helps to create this clash of civilizations that is actually a recruiting tool for ISIS and other radical jihadists. While political candidates and others debate tactical merits of how the issue is framed, one thing is clear. Americans have become much more distrustful of Muslims. A recent poll from the Arab American Institute finds that only a third of Americans have positive attitudes toward U.S. Muslims, down from about half six years ago. Republican presidential hopeful Donald Trump took things a step further in December when he called for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until, he added, our country's representatives can figure out what's going on. That voice is very loud, and it's very, very difficult to compete with. Hadiya Miramadi from the nonprofit educational organization Word says Trump's comments are a call to action for Muslim Americans. At this point, there's just so much negativity about Islam and Muslims that uh, it behooves us to improve our own relationships with our fellow citizens. So um, instead of turning inward, turning outward and talking to our neighbors and being like, let me explain to you how this is different. I had a local reporter ask me about some of the warning signs and I was like, guess what? The average mom has never seen an ISIS video. And she's like, what? What do you mean to never see an ISIS video? I mean, I don't know what people think, but people think that that's something that we watch on TV, like through YouTube, you know, on a regular basis. It just doesn't happen. So the average imam doesn't actually know what the radical narratives are to be able to explain the difference um, to his congregation. It's just not an issue that comes up. So the Muslim community needs to be proactive until we're able to establish to the community that um, this is truly a deviant interpretation of our faith. And it's a responsibility I take seriously. But there's room for optimism in winning over minds. And as New America's Anne-Marie Slaughter says, Americans have done it before. I think the most important thing to understand is every generation has its specific threat. So my parents, it was World War II and the Nazis and the fascists. For my generation, it was the Soviet Union and communism. For this generation, it is terrorism of different kinds because we're much more interconnected, because individuals can attack in various ways. And really the most important thing is to recognize, look, Americans should stand up and not give in to fear. Not only does that mean they're winning, but frankly, we're betraying our own values. You've been listening to Fighting ISIS at Home and Abroad. This hour was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Yael Evan Orr, with additional production help from Flan Williams and Margaret Evans. Special thanks to Salam Rizik, who brought us the story of journalist Mazar Matar. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the America Abroad or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website at PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show is provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI Public Radio International.